0: A famine strikes the land. So Abram takes Sarah, his wife, to Egypt to find food. She pretends to be a sister, yet Pharaoh seizes her for his harem. Yahweh plagues Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh rushes Abram and Sarah out of Egypt with gifts of flocks, herds, and servants. Re-entering Canaan, Abram is embroiled in war. He rescues his brother's son, Lot, and takes control of the land. Famine. Sojourn in a strange and dangerous country. Plagues, plunder, conquest. This is Abram's Exodus. Fast forward two generations, and there's a replay with variations. Jacob pleads to escape from his brother Esau, who wants to kill him. He finds his way to Padan Aram, where he enters the house of his uncle Laban. For 20 years, Jacob suffers Laban's abuse. Laban gives him Leah instead of Rachel, changes his wages time and again, forces Jacob to pay for losses from his flocks. Yet Yahweh is with Jacob. While in exile, he fathers 11 sons and a daughter, and in spite of Laban, his flocks multiply. On the night he leaves, he's a wealthy man, having plundered his uncle's house. And for good measure, Rachel sits on Laban's household jobs on their way out of Paddan Aram. Exile in a foreign land, oppression, plunder, nighttime escape, humiliation of idols. This is Jacob's exodus. Another generation and another replay with further variations. Jacob and his sons descend to Egypt because of a severe famine. Joseph provides food and the Hebrews settle in the fertile land of Goshen where they multiply and fill the land. They become exceedingly strong, strong enough to alarm Pharaoh, who enslaves the Hebrews and starts slaughtering their infant sons. When Yahweh hears the cries of his people, he sends Moses to demand that Pharaoh allow Israel to sacrifice in the wilderness. Pharaoh refuses, so the Lord devastates Egypt with plague after plague. He targets Egypt's gods. Egyptians worship the Nile, but Yahweh turns it to blood. Egypt has frog and scarab gods but Yahweh fills the land with st- stinging insects and invasive, stinking frogs. Egyptians worship the sun, but Yahweh blots out the sun with a darkness so thick it can be felt. Egyptians believe Pharaoh is an incarnation of the god Ra, but Yahweh topples him too. As Miriam, the sister of Moses, sings at the sea, the horse and his rider are thrown into the sea. In the last plague, the angel of death passes through the land at night defending the houses marked with the blood of bulls, blood of lambs or goats but slaughtering the firstborn sons in every unmarked house. Pharaoh had seized Yahweh's son Israel so Yahweh retaliates by taking Egypt's firstborn sons. And in one last humiliation, Israelite women go from house to house asking for gold and silver and clothing. Women gathering the plunder of mighty Egypt. Famine. Sojourn in a foreign land, oppression and murder, plagues, deliverance, plunder, the powerful fallen from their thrones, idols humbled and shattered. This is Israel's exodus. I could go on and on and on. Every judge in the book of Judges is a minor league Moses. Every deliverance in the book of Judges is a replay of the exodus. Threatened by Saul, David sojourns among the Philistines, where he is fruitful and multiplies. And eventually he returns to the land to conquer and to rule it. During Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib besieges Jerusalem until the angel of death, the same angel that slaughtered the firstborn of Egypt, kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Haman tricks the Persian king Ahasuerus into proclaiming a decree against the Jews. But Yahweh sends deliverance in the middle of the night, when the sleepless king consults his chronicles and remembers the heroism of Mordecai, the Jew. The Lord cunningly turns Haman's plottings against him, and the Jews slaughter the enemies who intended to slaughter them. The Lord drives Israel and Judah into exile, yet prophet after prophet promises a new exodus, water in the wilderness, a procession to the land led by Yahweh himself, the humiliation of the gods of Babylon, Zion rebuilt in glory. And in the return from exile, these promises of a second Exodus are fulfilled. The entire Old Testament is a book of Exodus, a history of deliverances and liberations, tales of Yahweh's daring last minute rescues under cover of night. Israel's enemies are thrown down, and Israel is exalted. Idols are crushed. And Israel's history is a history of Exodus because Israel's God is a God. Of Exodus. A God who hears the cries of his people. A God who visits them in their distress. A God who takes vengeance against his rivals. A God who will not rest until he has shaped a world that fulfills his first commandment. There shall be no other gods before me. We turn to page 2 the New Testament and it starts all over again. In the second chapter of Matthew another murderous king is killing infant children. And again, the angel of the Lord intervenes to whisk one child to safety. It's another exodus, but it's all backwards. The king isn't Pharaoh, but Herod, king of the Jews. The land where infants are slaughtered isn't Egypt, but Judea. The safe haven isn't the land of promise, but Egypt. All of the coordinates are upside down. All of the roles reversed, but the story is the same. A king threatens. The Lord sends an angel to save the true Israel who eventually returns to Galilee as herald of his father's kingdom. It's the exodus of the infant Jesus, the Son of God, the true Israel, called from Egypt. And so Mary sings, like her namesake Miriam, a song of exodus. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. He has brought the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of low degree. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. He has given help to his servant Israel, so as to remember his mercy forever as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed. But that early exodus is just a foreshadowing of a more momentous exodus in the life of Jesus. Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration to discuss what Luke calls the exodus which Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In his death Jesus is the Passover lamb, slain for the sins of the world, his blood delivers his people from the shadow of death. In his resurrection Jesus is the firstborn son escaping from Egypt. In his passage through death into life, Jesus is a new Moses, leading his people out of darkness and slavery into liberty and light. Jesus the new Moses leads his people out of Judaism which has, which has become in Egypt through the wilderness and out to disciple the nations. Not just the Old Testament, but the entire Bible is a book of Exodus. The gospel is good news of Exodus. The announcement that the God of Exodus has entered our broken world to lead his children from the tomb to his table. The God of Exodus comes to lead creation itself into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. And the living God doesn't stop being the God of Exodus after the resurrection of Jesus. He keeps doing Exodus because Jesus accomplishes a once-for-all Exodus in Jerusalem. Exodus becomes the very form of the church's life. And that's what Acts 12 is all about. The chapter begins with Herod the king. He's a descendant of Herod the Greeks who slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem. And he's related to Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist and consented to Jesus' crucifixion. The Herod of Acts 12 is every inch his grandfather's grandson. Like all of the diabolical Herods, he does evil to the saints, putting James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, to the sword. And then during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the week-long feast that follows Passover, Herod arrests Peter and puts him in prison. Peter's been arrested and imprisoned before, but this time the threat is intensified. Once Passover is over, Herod plans to bring Peter out before the people, perhaps to subject him to a public trial, more likely to display him in a public execution. While Peter is in prison, an angel comes by night, filling the dungeon with heavenly light. He strikes off Peter's chains ushers him past the four guards and opens the iron gate that leads into the street. Peter goes to the house where the disciples are praying, and a servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the gate, sees him and rushes back inside with the glad news. The others don't believe her, but Peter keeps knocking like the rejected bridegroom of the Song of Songs, until they open the gate and bring him inside. We've seen this before. Every last bit of this we've seen before. Peter is sleeping. And sleep is a symbolic death. Prison is a symbolic grave. Peter expects to receive a death sentence the next morning. He is in shale. Yet he comes out the other side. A resurrected man led by an angel of the Lord. He appears unexpectedly at Mary's gate and is himself mistaken for an angel. Women discovered the empty tomb of Jesus and told the apostles. But the apostles didn't believe until Jesus appeared to them. And so, too, Peter, like Jesus, appears to a woman, Rhoda, who announces his presence while others doubt. Raised from the dead, Jesus is reunited with his disciples, and Peter, too, rejoins the believers in Mary's house. Peter and John visit Jesus' tomb, and after his resurrection from prison, Peter goes to the home of John, who is also called Mark. Like the risen Jesus, Peter commissions a new leader for the Jerusalem church, another James, this one the brother of Jesus. Like the risen Jesus, Peter mysteriously sips away to another place. Jesus passed through an exodus during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Arrest, trial, death, burial, resurrection, appearance, ascension. And by his Spirit, Jesus replicates that same exodus in the life of Peter. Arrest, imprisonment, miraculous release, appearance, departure. And Peter's prison break is yet another variation on the original Passover and exodus. Like Israel's exodus, Peter's exodus is on the heels of a famine which has been spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire. Peter is arrested by a king who slaughters innocents. Sitting in Herod's prison, he's like Israel, prisoners in misery and chains, as Psalm 107 describes it. While Peter languishes, others pray for his release, Their prayers rising like the cries of Israel from the land of Goshen. Peter is plucked by night by the angel of the Lord, now an angel of life. Israel ate the Passover, as we heard in our Old Testament reading, with their robes girded, sandals on their feet, staffs in their hands. They ate in haste, ready to leave at a moment's notice. Peter dresses hastily for the journey out of the iron prison. Gird yourself, put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you and follow me says the angel. Israel's escape takes down Pharaoh's army and Peter's exodus takes down four quartets of soldiers from Herod's forces. Herod had intended to bring Peter out to kill him. Instead, the Lord brings Peter out and Herod has to content himself with killing his own soldiers to die like the firstborn sons of Egypt at the first Passover. The last 12 verses, the last verses of Acts 12 look like a detached addendum but they're not. The chapter ends where it began with the bloodthirsty opportunist King Herod. Now everything about him is royal. Blastus is the royal chamberlain. Tyre and Sidon are fed by the king's country. When Herod meets the representatives of Tyre and Sidon, he puts on his royal robes and takes his royal throne. But Herod aspires to be more than a king. He thinks of his arrival as a theophany, the appearance of a god. When the people shout that he speaks with the voice of a God, Herod doesn't correct them or give glory to the true God. And so to Herod, the angel of the Lord is an angel of death, striking him and turning him into maggot food. Like the household gods of Laban, like the gods of Egypt, like the gods of Babylon, Herod the godling is ground to powder. Herod plays the role of Pharaoh in this Exodus story, and he plays Pharaoh to the end. Like Pharaoh, his hands are covered in blood. Like Pharaoh, he claims divine status. And like Pharaoh, he dies like a man. A Satan, Herod falls like lightning. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. To Peter and the church, deliverance from darkness and reunion in Mary's house. To Herod and the soldiers, a descent into hell. The entire Bible is a book of Exodus. The gospel is the good news of Exodus. The church's history is a history of repeated Exodus. For the church is the stone that crushes every Pharaoh, every Herod. Those who destroy God's holy temple, God Himself will destroy. No Herod, with sword and scepter, with crown imperial, with intertissued robe, can arrest the progress of the church. Herod, notwithstanding the word of the Lord, continues to grow and multiply. This is part of the good news of Peter's exodus. Every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne. The church's history is exodus, and so is your history. Your life is a continuous passage from death to life. For God is forever and always, Still now, the God of Exodus, the God who hears your cries of distress, the God who breaks your chains, whatever those chains might be, the God who sets prisoners free, the God who does mighty things for you, who casts down rulers from their thrones, who scatters the proud, who sends the rich away empty-handed and fills you with good things.